This is Tech News for MBAs. I'm Professor Paul Canetti. It is March 12th, 2021. March 12th, March 12th. The state sounds familiar. Oh, that's right. March 12th, 2020 was basically the very last day before it all went to hell. March 12th, 2020 was a Thursday last year. I remember it well. And I think a couple of days earlier than that, we had told people to maybe stop coming to the office if they felt uncomfortable on the subways or whatever. And that day, nobody came to the office. And my wife was not going into her office either. So she came to mine. So we worked together in our office, which we still do today. We're the only people in my office still a year later, but that was kind of like a novel thing. And it was the last night we went out to dinner and sat inside at a restaurant. We sort of knew that we shouldn't be. We were going to this Korean restaurant nearby, which unfortunately has since closed. It was called Hanjan on West 26th. Awesome restaurant. And um, we were just going to pick up the food and go back and actually eat it safely at the office. But the restaurant was really empty and they had this little sort of nook near the window that was away from everyone else. And I remember taking alcohol wipes and wiping down like the silverware and the surfaces, even though a day or two earlier, we hadn't been doing any of that. And we ate that meal. And then that was really kind of like the end of civilization here in New York City. And um, it is just really, really wild that a full year has passed. And uh, in some ways, things have gotten better. In other ways, things have gotten a lot worse. And specifically, when we think about tech, tech actually had a freaking amazing year. Human lives lost. Families and jobs destroyed. Technology stocks record highs. And so our first headline this week is not really something that happened this week, but more a reflection on technology in the pandemic. By pretty much every measure, technology and the technology industry did really amazing during this past year. If if you didn't know that all of this other craziness was going on, you would think, wow, this was like the best year in human history, which is such a juxtaposition to the way that we actually feel personally in our lives. And so why is that? What is the connection here? We saw so many trends that ran counter to the feeling and the physical toll that this has taken on so many people and so many families. You know, uh, more startups were founded in the last year than in the years prior. We saw almost every technology stock soar. We saw more uh, public offerings than we'd seen. And then when you look at sort of category by category, you know, um, digital entertainment like Netflix and other services like that obviously went up. Uh, Technologies like Zoom that allowed for virtual and digital communication, those things went up. Anything relating to delivery, e-com, ordering food online, groceries, all of that had a boom. And so there were all of these beneficiaries to this horrible, horrible event. 
For most of this, you can draw a direct line of causality. Okay, so people don't want to go to a restaurant, so they order in. That makes sense. And on top of it, there was sort of a doubling effect where, especially when you think about software, and that is mostly what we're talking about when we talk about quote unquote tech these days, software is a relatively safe activity in a pandemic. You're not going into a factory. You don't really need to be in an office. There's nothing really physical required because the thing that you are producing itself is not physical. And so technology companies were able to continue to innovate, release new products. You don't have any sort of supply chain issues. So not only was there more consumer demand for the tech products, and again, consumer meaning anyone consuming, but just demand in general. So this is businesses and the enterprise. These are individuals and families. This is schools. This is everybody suddenly uh, having an increased demand for doing things online. But also you had companies that were able to operate at full capacity, full efficiency, or pretty close to it relative to a lot of industries that were constrained, even if there was increased demand, they weren't able to produce enough supply. Whereas in software, you had increased demand and you were able to fulfill that demand, no problem. A lot of what we saw was really the acceleration of trends that were already in motion before the pandemic. And most of all, what I think is this is an acceleration of the biggest trend of all, which is just everything moving online, every industry moving to digital. And for those of you that have listened to me for a while, you know that I talk a lot about this very big transition that humanity is making. This is what I'm writing my book about. It's this whole idea that we are actually in the middle of this massive transition from the physical world to the digital world in almost everything that we do and use and experience. And looking back on it, we'll see that the early 21st century was really this pivotal moment of transition that takes decades and decades to happen. And so I think what this last year of the pandemic has done has probably just, you know, taken five years or maybe even 10 years. It's hard to measure of progress and just squeeze it into one year. In some cases, you really just needed an impetus for something to happen and shift from zero to one, something that was offline that is now online. A simple example, for instance, getting a document notarized in New York State had to happen in person. You had to find a human being that was appointed by the government as a notary, and then they had to watch you physically with their physical eyes as you signed with a pen onto a piece of paper, and then they signed their name saying, yes, I, the notary, saw that you could do this. Governor Cuomo here in New York made a decision early in the pandemic that you could have a notary witness your signature over Zoom or another video conferencing technology. And so it's a simple shift, but just allowing you to see someone through the lens of a camera instead of in physical reality, that's not a linear progression that happens over time. That's either yes or no. And there are a lot of those yes or no things that were no and now after the pandemic are yes and are likely to stay as a yes. I would be surprised if now they changed the law again and said, actually, notaries have to go back to being exclusively in person. 
But really what we've seen here is just a big move from physical to digital, from reality to software. And so for anyone in the software business or who has invested into the software business, this was a great year for you and will continue to be. We're seeing a bit of a market correction right now where I think some stocks, you know, if you look at the trajectory of Zoom, for instance, it's kind of like, okay, we probably went a little crazy with Zoom, um, but it's not going to suddenly drop to pre-pandemic levels. The landscape has now forever changed and technology again, is the beneficiary and whether that's fair or not. I know so many of us are thinking about what this moment was like a year ago. But as far as tech news goes, it's been really a wild ride. Gaming company Roblox went public this week. Roblox is a really interesting company. I know I just said it's a gaming company, but I don't think they actually would describe themselves that way. Roblox is more of a virtual world. And actually, as we talk about this transition uh, to the software layer, there's a concept called the metaverse. And the metaverse is sort of like a digital equivalent to the physical universe. There is a virtual universe. Now, what has yet to be seen is are there going to be lots of different metaverses? So there's the Roblox brand uh, metaverse. And then, you know, Epic Games has Fortnite. Facebook launched something called Horizon, which is another sort of virtual world, or do all these things sort of combine into a single virtual world? You know, here in the physical world, we all share one single existence, uh, believe it or not. But in the virtual world, you have these different sort of universes that are completely isolated from one another. But Roblox is truly an amazing game where you can have a unique identity, you can have friends, which could be people from real life or new people that you meet in Roblox. You can build your environment and share that environment with others. You know, if you remember SimCity from the olden days, something kind of like that, but on a much grander scale, you can do activities and have events inside uh, the Roblox universe. You can spend money uh, and actually buy things there. And then, you know, if you are a vendor in the world, you can convert uh, that money back into dollars. So it's really just a whole crazy parallel universe that happens inside the software. And today, of course, people are playing Roblox, or I don't know what the verb here is, living inside Roblox through their computer or their phone or their iPad. But you can imagine a future centered around augmented reality, virtual reality, where you are actually in the world and your five senses are tricked into thinking that that is the real world, especially as the fidelity of the graphics uh, and the technology and the internet speeds and all that stuff gets better and better and better. It'll be less and less distinguishable from the real world, like living in the matrix or something. And so this company going public uh, and their stock is already doing amazingly well. The company was valued at over $45 billion and it's only the first week. But to me, it represents the beginning of these virtual worlds. I think, you know, traditional investors are putting this in the gaming category. But to me, investing in a company like Roblox is more investing in this idea of a metaverse and a parallel world where people will live, work, build relationships, make money, spend money. It's just a whole parallel uh, economy and a parallel society 
I'm really planting the seeds of what could be a truly virtual universe that eventually many of us will spend a lot of time in. We will talk about Facebook. We will talk about Twitter. We will talk about Russia. We will talk about the creator economy. And of course, a random startup you've never heard of right after this 15-second break with a word about our sponsor, Bounce House. Bounce House helps you sell one-on-one sessions and group classes online. Built for one-person businesses like personal trainers, yoga instructors, and nutritionists. Bounce House is giving away a 1,000 free licenses to those affected by the pandemic. Go to bounce.house to learn more. That's bounce.house. Bounce House. Sell your service online. Okay, it is time for my favorite segment, Random Startup You've Never Heard Of. This week's random startup you never heard of is a company called Hangio. Now, this is not exactly a tech company per se, but I met the founder recently and I was so impressed. It is uh, an e-commerce website. They are selling direct-to-consumer hangers. So think about a brand like Bombas for socks or Allbirds for shoes. This is like that, but for hangers. And these are not normal hangers. They're amazing, bendable, configurable hangers that really can customize themselves, or rather you could customize the hanger for each and every type of use case to make sure that your clothing hangs, of course, but also doesn't get all wrinkled and messed up and has lines. Direct-to-consumer is a trend we've seen in the world of e-commerce where things that were commodities where you're buying, you know, random hangers at Bed Bath & Beyond, you don't know the brand and you expect it to be cheap in price and also cheap in quality. And now all of a sudden you see these brands popping up that are becoming high quality, higher price, direct to consumer, which means higher margin for them. They own the relationship You really create affinity around that brand. Ultimately, Hangio's mission is to revolutionize the whole closet. They're just starting with the hanger. And so you can imagine once you really align with the mission of Hangio and they start offering more and more things, you become a Hangio closet kind of person. Anyway, I love the concept. I love the specificity of it. Check it out. Their website is shophangio, like Hangio, shophangio.com. And that was our random startup you've never heard of. Facebook is introducing new ways for creators to make money with tipping and paid subscriptions. We talked about a couple of weeks ago this new Twitter feature that's coming called Super Follow where you can subscribe to a particular user on Twitter and pay them a monthly fee to unlock exclusive content. It looks like now Facebook is going to be doing something similar. Also this week, Twitter announced that they're working on something called the Tip Jar as part of their new Spaces product, which is an audio product that's going to compete with startup Clubhouse. And the Tip Jar and this new tipping functionality on Facebook are definitely of the same mind where you are able to sort of donate or give a tip, a one-time tip or maybe a recurring tip that basically acts as a paid subscription to a creator, to someone that you like to follow on these platforms. There are standalone platforms that allow for you to do this today. Most widely used would be something like Patreon, but integrating that directly into Facebook or directly into Twitter, 
I think will certainly increase adoption. And it's really interesting to see these new sort of monetization models that are two-tiered. So presumably, Facebook and Twitter are going to take a percentage of everything that is transacted through their platform. So this is a new non-advertising-based source of revenue that is coming directly from the users. So you use Facebook or Twitter, and of course, this will make its way to Instagram and other social networks as well. Until now, I've been using Facebook for a really long time. I've never paid Facebook anything to be a user. I've been using Twitter for a really long time. I've never paid Twitter anything. But here, I'm not going to pay Twitter. I'm going to pay someone that I like on Twitter, a user, or I'm going to pay someone on Facebook that I enjoy their content and I want to get special content, or I just want to reward them for the value that they bring to me, that middle layer of the creator or the user of the platform, this is really about users paying other users. And then some of that finds its way up to the parent entity, Facebook or Twitter. And so it's a really interesting model because it is kind of like a win-win-win. You feel good about tipping your favorite musician or whoever it is that you happen to like. They make real money. And then Facebook or Twitter take a piece of it, uh, which seems fair in this scenario. So this is a trend that we're seeing heating up real fast. And you can see that every platform is toying with some version of this simultaneously. And so I think ultimately this is good for everybody. And it's going to allow creators to make some real money, which is the most important thing. Russia is slowing down access to Twitter, citing content moderation concerns. What does it mean for a country, for a government to slow down a particular website or service? You may not realize this, but the internet that you have access to is regulated and controlled by, if you're in the U.S., the U.S. government, if you're in Russia, the Russian government. Uh, If you've heard about the debate around net neutrality, this is really at the center of that here in the U.S. And the idea is that right now you basically have equal access to all of the different services you use online. If your Internet is a certain speed, then that's the same speed that will be applied everywhere. Whereas in an unequal world, the Internet provider or the government or whoever could actually speed up or slow down certain websites and apps. And so maybe you have to pay a little more to get the fast connection to the fast version of Netflix instead of the slow version of Netflix or whatever. In this case, Russia is choosing to slow down Twitter for all people that are accessing Twitter inside Russia. They claim because of content moderation and child pornography and other things they want to keep off the platform. A more cynical take is that Russia wants to make sure that free speech, information, and criticism of the Russian government is not spreading like wildfire on Twitter, and it's hard for something to spread like wildfire if it's moving really slowly. It also gives moderators in Russia more time to filter out things. Think about like a live award show on broadcast TV, and they delay the broadcast by 30 seconds so that they can bleep out the curse words. That's a rough equivalent to what we're talking about. So they're slowing down Twitter so that they can sort of intercept things as they come and getting rid of the real-time nature of the platform. It is unknown if this is a permanent change, uh, exactly how slow that means, but just the fact that this is possible is really interesting. And of course it's possible. I mean, if you look at China, they just block many services outright. 
Lastly, it's a good reminder that big U.S. tech companies like Twitter are dealing with a lot more than just users in the U.S. and a lot more than just regulatory bodies in the U.S. They have to balance the demands of governments and regulators and users across the entire globe. Well, that was this week in tech. It has been truly a crazy head-spinning year in tech, and I know a challenging year for everyone. And so uh, hang in there. I have a feeling by March 12th, 2022, we will finally be on the other side of this thing. I mean, God, I really sincerely hope we are. But um, I hope everyone's doing well. As always, I have a simple request for you this week and every week. Subscribe to this podcast, leave a review, or tell a friend. I'm Professor Paul Canetti. I'll see you next week for more tech news for MBAs. Thank you.